Warriors, welcome to the show, Lily here. Now, today's conversation is a little bit nerdy, but I'm not going to be afraid of that. I know you guys like that, and you shouldn't be afraid either. Uh, It was brought on by kind of two things. One, a national energy crisis, and two, a question from a listener. So we decided to combine these two things to have a conversation about our energy system in a way that you haven't heard it before with solutions that are more exciting than just turn the light off when you leave a room and try to switch providers to a company that might not rip you off. So we hope that you stick with us today because actually I have learned a lot listening to Millie and I think that she guides us through some principles that we can then use to kind of feel a bit less afraid of this and a bit like we actually have the power to take control of our energy and to create a system that works for all of us. So without further ado, here is our listener question and my conversation with Millie. Lily and hi Nelly. Um, my name is Tracy. I'm from Sydney's Inner West and love your show. Um, I wanted to touch on the um, concept of the public good. So universal healthcare and free education for all. That the concept of a public good used to be pretty obvious to me uh, until a manager in my twenties told me quite assertively that he thought most roads should have tolls. He strongly believes in a user-pay system. So I came to understand that even within universal healthcare and free education for all, there are nuances of what actually defines a public good and how governments can skew their investment. One area that I'm particularly interested in for our upcoming election is their take on how they're encouraging households to move to more sustainable sources of energy. For instance, the plan to invest in EV charging stations or electric vehicle charging stations I think we need the government to invest in these and lead the way forward. I don't think there's an individual or a corporation who could just take this on themselves. And these are essential in driving up the purchases of electric vehicles that Australia has been slow on the uptake on. Oh, we really need to move this along. So if it's investment in a sustainable future for our earth isn't a public good, I don't know what is. Let me know your thoughts. Thanks, bye. Here, Tracy, and welcome to the Remakers, everybody. It's another Lily Millie chat today. And Tracy was a bit prescient because (laughs) she left us this voice message about the uptake to renewables and our energy use before the election. And of course, since then, this whole question of energy has kind of since exploded onto the national conversation in this kind of energy crisis that we have been having in really all of the states and territories along the east, so everywhere but the Northern Territory and WA because they have kind of separate energy markets. So anyway, before we freak out that this is going to be a very technical, um, impenetrable conversation about energy markets, I just want to say uh, welcome to the show. And and yes, public good of of energy is something that we all need and use and the need for it to sort of um, be something that doesn't, you know, threaten civilization and life on earth as we know it. So we thought that we would just start there today. 
And Millie, you're going to be playing the role um, of Boffin in today's conversation. You have been researching energy uh, a fair bit and have gotten your head around this, even though it's not really your area of uh, core expertise. And I'm going to be playing the role of a consumer citizen who just wants things to work. How does that sound? Yeah, I'm not scared at all. Not at all. (laughs) So firstly, to Tracy's point, like, surely this is a public good. Surely we need energy. It's something that we need to be available, that we need to be affordable, and we need to not be killing our planet. So what is the government doing or not doing about it? Uh, What could they be doing better to make this something that we can have access to. And then I think we're going to get into a little bit of like, so what are citizens doing about it and what can we do about it as as individuals plugging into community? Yeah. And I mean, I think the question is even bigger than what can government do about it. It's like we have this moment to reimagine energy uh, production and consumption and distribution, and that is actually going to take, you know, it's not just government, it's individuals, it's citizens, it's civil society, it's business. So I think we have an opportunity to rethink that ecosystem. So it'd be great to chat through some of that. Right. So it's not just saying um, we have these old cold powered and in some cases gas fired, uh, gas powered, you know, um, electricity, and we need to switch away from those into another form of electricity. uh, And therefore, you know, we need some technical people to figure that out for us. We need some government leadership to figure that out for us. It's actually saying we can do more than just switch from one mode of electricity to another. Is that what you're kind of arguing? Um, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think uh, there's a lot of concern in some of the research circles around different types of implementation of renewable energy that we could just change one type of tech for another. So move from fossil fuels to renewables. Um, that would address a bunch of climate change issues, but it wouldn't address necessarily reliability or equality or affordability and so, I mean, maybe it's a, it's a good moment to just, if, if unlike me, you haven't been following the energy stuff that's been going on recently, like to back up a tiny bit and just sort of put this in context, perhaps. Yeah. So um, let's, let's start there. Yeah. So in recent weeks across, as you said, across much of Australia, there have been these warnings that there are going to be energy brownouts. And so as I understand that, that means kind of we get a warning ahead of time, the power is going to go off during specific times for specific places. We might not have enough power to meet demand for businesses, but as well as for households. Yeah. As opposed to a blackout where something goes wrong. Something, That's right. It's an know. unexpected turn, yeah. Off, yeah. turn off of power. Yeah. And so I don't know about you, but for me, I was like, hang on, wait a minute. <laughs> I live in Australia. Like, what do you mean we're about to have scheduled brownouts? Like this is, yeah. this is, this is the future and instability coming here. And I don't, like this. Yeah. So I think for one, there's this moment of like, whoa, 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 hang on. Yeah. What is going on here? Yeah. Um, and aren't we also like one of the largest energy exporters in the world? What is going on? So there's a few things going on, yeah. right? And I think firstly, like noticing where we are. So we're in this, it, it didn't eventuate. The brownouts haven't eventuated so far. Um, but, you know, we're in this moment of, of instability and crisis that our electricity supplies could, could be unreliable. Yeah. What, also in this moment of like increasing climate disruption, um, which we know is caused by the fossil fuels that we, you know, are generating our power from and is also affecting the reliability of our power. So apparently in New South Wales, in the Hunter, one of the coal mines there um, had flooding issues, which meant that there was then supply to the local power station. So there are problems there. Um, 
And we're at this moment of interesting change. We've had a change of government. The new government has a greater commitment to action on climate change. And it's just a moment of flux where they're finding their feet, advocates are finding their feet. You know, we, it's so it's a, it's a disruption point and that's quite exciting, really. I yeah. think. And then, of course, globally, like Russia invading Ukraine has meant all of these like global and European sanctions on Russian gas, which has increased the demand for gas on the global market. So there are there is this confluence of like big factors and big sources. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we're in a moment of of kind of crisis. Um and and change and disruption. And we know that um, writ large moments of disruption are um, really good opportunities as we're being forced to, you know, it's like when you move house and you, they, the, the energy companies know that when you move house, you are at your most willing to change provider because your life is being disrupted. And so you look around and go, okay, well, who should I go with now? Um, and the same can be said for us as a country. Like we have these moments of crisis and we can go, okay, well now actually what do we want? And we're certainly seeing this you know, back to the Ukraine point, you know, it's accelerating the uptake of renewables and getting off gas by a decade over in certain European markets, which is, you know, a definite silver lining of this whole horrible war. Um, But bringing it back to Australia for a second, like, you know, there's this kind of um, linguistic myth that in Chinese, the Chinese characters for crisis is problem meets opportunity. I think it actually comes from the Simpsons. There's a Simpson quote where Homer's like, yes, crisis-tunity. But Actually, in the Latin, like the Greco-Latin of the word crisis, it means to sift or to sieve. So a crisis is really this moment of like sifting through, okay, what are the good things here? Like what's what's true? What's what do we want? What do we want to keep? And then what do we want to like let, you know, imagining that you're at the sand, you know, and you you're at the beach and you've got your big bucket of sand and you're sieving it and like you're looking for those pearls of treasure that are there and you're letting the rest fall away. And so I really like that idea of like discernment, like crisis is actually a moment of sifting and discernment and what do we want to carry with us kind of going forward. And that's what we want to talk today a lot about is really what are the solutions? What is the essence of what we want to take through this crisis um, that all of us can be part of in like ways that are actually sound so utopian and wild or like such fantasy, but are actually happening already and are really cool. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think your point at the beginning as well of like, who here has started listening to this podcast and is like, oh my God, yeah. get me out of here. Yeah. Like, Eject. Run. All I want from my energy is reliable supply. Yeah. I, I Keep really, the lights on and don't rip me off. Thank you that's very right. much. I really couldn't yeah. care less about transmission lines or resistors or trans, whatever, transformers. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm laughing here because I'm the woman in the room who's often like, great, don't need to know that someone technical deal with it. I'll move on to the values. Yeah. But what I think this opportunity does as we do do that sifting is it helps us to think about where are we connected to the things that are the public good and where are we disconnected? And that there is a, you know, tech, technocrat, I can't even say the word. Technocratic? <laughs> Technocratic and bureaucratic kind of processes and language really separates us from energy supply, from from understanding what is going on with the way that our energy is supplied and distributed. And so why I decided to like plunge into all this is I think we know the values. Like we know that we want clean energy. We know we want safe energy. We know we want affordable and we know we want it to be equitable. Um, Yeah, that is the public good of a good reliable energy supply. And we need to start to be getting, to get confident in engaging with that, you know, similar way that the um, Catholic Church would conduct its 
masses in Latin, you know, it, it keeps those in power holding that connection to, to the issue. So I think, I think I really encourage everyone to stay with this conversation because we need to get confident about having ownership of, of these types of things. So, you know, we've talked about climate change. So there was flooding in the Hunter, coal mine flooded. It meant that supply was limited. I didn't know this. Makes sense. But coal mines are next to power stations and then they just, you know, the coal can go on a conveyor belt. So when you have a disruption of that local supply, we don't really have a backup. Um, As you mentioned, the cost of gas. So Australian gas is on the international market and so Australia has to uh, compete with the international market to buy gas. Um, This makes it really expensive for for people to produce power. WA actually has a different system. They have a certain percentage which is kept for domestic use and so gas is much cheaper there. Um, This is important in thinking about the crisis because so it's worth noting as well that the Australian energy market regulator, AMO, caps the price that power can be sold at. Um, And so as prices of gas and coal go up, um, those producing energy said, well, there's not profit to be made in Australia. Um, Fuel prices are so high, plus there was a bunch of unscheduled maintenance. And so they said, well, we just don't have the supply to be profitable, so we're stopping supply or we're reducing supply. And I heard Um, that the wholesale price of electricity went up 140% just in the first couple of months of 2022, and then it's only increased since then. So like there's some real things. And I mean, I've listened on the radio to like the spokesperson for that group saying, look, you know, like there would be companies facing like massive losses to actually supply at the prices that would be allowed here. And, you know, it's not good for consumers to have like companies having to fold suddenly or, you know, like we, we do need a sustainable system. Yeah. And I think part of that, and this is where it gets into murky territory for me, that there becomes a moment where companies can actually game this system. So if the, an energy company says we can't provide energy. Um, so Amo stepped in and said, you know, well, you have to Mm. like, sorry, loves, you've got to do it. Um, if that happens, Producers, or producers are then um, compensated by the Australian government and taxpayers. So there is a concern that there becomes this bit of a game of chicken mm-hmm. um, and an intentional standoff where private companies are, are gaming that system. And I think, you know, to be fair, in a profit-driven system, we should ex- expect that. Like that's how that that's yeah. that's the drive of these for-profit companies. Um, and I think it's just important to flag that when we talk about potential solutions that there is a the profit motive here is an impact. Um, the other thing is that there's been unclear policy context. So energy infrastructure is privately owned, like things like my favourite word, like transmission lines, which I still don't understand. Um, and it's re- it's a regulated monopoly. Um, and so the, as this infrastructure is ageing, because there's been real uncertainty about, oh, what's, what's the transition to renewables going to be like? What's the timeline? Companies have been unwilling to invest in upgrades because, they, you know, is it four years, 10 years? 20 years. Um, So it means that there's a lot more unscheduled maintenance going on as this infrastructure degrades. Um, And then at the same time, uh, there's, you know, complex policy that means there's a bunch of renewables really ready and waiting to go online, but approval hasn't happened yet because it's quite complex to get that. So, you know, there's a real mix of factors here between policy settings, privatisation, climate disaster, you know, and I certainly don't have the expertise to point the finger at any of them. But I think mm. what is interesting is there are a bunch of factors that make this hard for us to understand, but also mean we can look at it from a bunch of different 
directions. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we've got the sort of recap of of the problems, everything from climate disasters to war to murky policy settings to profit-driven motives that then don't make sense when you can get so much money if you export it, but if you save it for the domestic market, you're actually losing money um, or not making as much profit as you would like. So, so where do we think? And like, when I say, where do we go from here? I don't just mean like, you know, the, the sort of energy czars in charge of the, the systems, but I mean, like, what do we do from here as Australians, as people who need to keep the lights on? And, you know, I'm seeing these warnings that are freaking people out. Like we already pay huge bills here for gas and electricity some of our biggest household bills. Um, and, you know, the the only solution is, well, if you can afford it and you own your own home, you know, whack on some solar panels. Well, not everyone can do that. And even if you do own your own home, you might not be well positioned for solar panels in the way that your home is laid out. You know, there are all of these things. So it feels quite disempowering and scary. Like you're just going to be waiting for the shock to hit you of the next bill, the next bill, the next bill. And they're warning us right now, like bills are going to continue to go up. Like, I think we're all going to be holding our breath after this, what we've just been through to see what it's like and knowing that we've had this early cold snap this winter. So like, how do we take control here so that we are not at the whim of all of this stuff? I mean, I I think it's really complex and, you know, what you're saying really just is that reminder that whatever transition we have, we have to think about inequality and we have to think about access and we have to think about reliability. And you know, I, I think from the research that I've been doing as a, you know, as a layperson, this is not my area of expertise, you know, I, I mean, I think perhaps it's easier to zoom out and think about, well, what could we change? And then what, what's the individual way to get into this? Because I okay. think obviously there's both. Um, so thinking about, uh, you know, mo- obviously we need to move to more renewables and no fossil fuels. That's a like that's a no-brainer that has to happen. That yeah. is one of the things that will limit the climate climate crisis. We'll make sure that we have more stable weather. You know, we won't have such instable weather events like that. That's just a no-brainer. It's there. It's ready. It's it's happening. Um, and the way we do that, I think, is one of the exciting bits. So you know, there are these examples around the country where we are seeing negative impacts on local communities of renewable energy um, because it's being done in the same kind of extractive model of private profit-driven um, motives just to, to generate power. But there are also... Sorry. So can I, sorry, can I just interrupt you there? When you say negative impacts of local of renewable energy, like what? Yeah, so destroying tropical rainforests for wind farms or putting, um, you know, putting solar farms in, you know, areas of cultural significance for First Nations people. So just without proper consultation with the community. So that's like there's this risk then that we just replicate the old model of like power structures as in kind of political power, personal power structures um, in this new thing. But it's that's also, I mean, there are a few examples, but there are also really exciting examples where that model isn't being followed and when there are really new ways of doing things. So, um, you know, for example, we've seen solar farms on sheep farms and there was a a recent article we can link to around how this is actually by combining the sheep and the solar, you know, it's improving wool quality and soil moisture retention. And, you know, it's it's like winds across. I'm I'm actually trying to picture this solar sheep farms. We are not talking about sheep (laughs) with like solar panels on their backs, please. 
<laughs> no, obviously. So it's, you know, it's, it's solar panels in a paddock, but they're finding that the quality of the wool is actually better. Um, and you know, there's, How are there's the a sheep few... interacting with the solar panel. Like, just... Oh, well, look, you can get very technical and I think there's still work to find out, but it's about shade and moisture retention in soil. Okay. And so there's a bunch of things that are. The solar panels providing shade for the sheep or yeah. something. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, that, that's, a that's private... all I need to know. <laughs> yeah. That's a private model, but it's a thoughtful integrated. Yeah. Model. Yep. 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 Okay. Um, and we've got a few more examples of those. Um, so there's the. Um, First Nations Clean Energy. Um, so that's a First Nations led and owned a set of renewable power projects. And the purpose of this is that the community uh, owns the power and the setup. Um, they, you know, it, it keeps, they're able to consent to renewables on country. They're able to keep the jobs local and the power is sort of provided in a way that benefits the collective. So some of this is really small scale, like solar panels on the community centre to reduce bills and then the development of a small solar array that will, will power that community. Um, and this is, I mean, this is great not only because it, it creates local ownership, but also often these areas have really unreliable energy access. Um, and they're, they're really great case studies for how we do energy more efficiently in remote areas. So so is this like crowdfunded energy? Because I know that's starting to happen too. There was a change in the Corporations Act, uh, I think in 2017, that allowed, you can now, there are these examples. So there's one in New South Wales called Grong Grong Solar Farm. And like you can chip in as little as $250 and then you become a part owner in a solar farm that has some government investment, but a lot of like just ordinary people investment and you then have a say in, I guess, how that's worked. There's also co-ops. So I guess we have these different financial models, but is it a matter of like if a community wanted to make that happen, or if in this case, if you happen to know with the Indigenous example, like is this individuals putting in money? Is this government investing in money? Is it some kind of hybrid combination? So at the moment with a lot of, so I have to step back a bit. There's the like, there's the big scale, uh, say, renewable energy, there's a solar farm in Canberra that's a community-owned solar farm mm -hmm. and you buy into it. And it's basically, as far as I understand, you know, people put up the capital to make it happen and they kind of have shares in it and they have a, some say in governance. And that model is set up um, with a constitution that its purpose is not just for profit, it's also to put forward clean green energy that community controls. So like there are those kind of, and I, I, they may have got a government grant, I'm not sure, but so there are those sort of big scale things. Okay. Yeah. Um, then there's what they call neighbourhood batteries. Um, mm -hmm. So that's where you might have a whole lot of community solar panels, whether that's like on a community building or households feeding into a local battery. Um, and this gets a little bit beyond me, but basically it's a way of storing energy. Yeah, I was going to say, because obviously there's this thing called nighttime and the, also even during the day, the sun does not always shine. We have just had one of our wettest, you know, periods yeah. on record. So yes, we need better batteries. Batteries are expensive. So it makes sense to have locally based community batteries where lots of solar can feed in and be stored and redistributed locally. Is that it? Well, it can either, it, it so... This is again more technical, but if you so if you have a solar panel on your house, um, the solar the sun shines. When the sun is shining, you use that energy directly. Um, if you're not using all that energy, it gets fed into the grid. Someone else can use it. Um, and when the sun is not shining, you buy energy from the grid. 
um, you buy it back more expensively than you get paid for putting yours in. Um, if you have it locally, it can sort of store that solar energy locally. And, and so there's an efficiency there and it, it, it doesn't have to travel so far. Yeah. Um, I also learned a thing about skinny power lines. <laughs> it's a metaphor here, but you can't push. Our power lines weren't designed really to have power to flow kind of power. That's probably not the technical term, but it means that you Sometimes if you have a neighborhood producing a lot of solar energy, the lines aren't fat enough to get the energy out. So power lines were designed as a one-way street. They were designed to bring energy from the power station to your house, not the other way around. I think it's more just a capacity issue. You can't, that it doesn't, there's just not, there's just not, if you imagine water through a skinny tube versus water mm-hmm. through a fat tube, you can fit mm-hmm. more through the fat tube. Mm-hmm. Um, so these, these neighborhood batteries could be set up by a power company mm-hmm. um, or they could, there's an example, um, uh, it's called, I think, Yarra Energy Foundation. So they're trialling a neighbourhood battery. It's set, been set up as a trial with support, I think, from local government, federal government. Um, and as far as I can tell at the moment, the community doesn't have ownership, um, but they they are consulted because, you know, you've got a battery in the street and there's a whole lot of different issues with that. So I was talking to Dr. Hedda Ransom Cooper, who's a, a specialist in you know neighborhood batteries, and I hope we can maybe have her on the podcast. But she was saying, right now, that neighborhood battery stuff is just really uncertain. It's it could be done in a way that um, is entirely privatized and entirely in the hands of private companies, and they're just sort of profit driven and a bit of efficiency for them, or they could be run by communities in a in a way. So I think that the sort of exciting thing is this is a really new space yeah. and it's yeah it's um yeah there, there's heaps of good stuff going on and we have now is the time to decide who has control of this what is its purpose why do we really want this um so thinking about ownership and then there's another exciting model which you mentioned which is um cooperatives and so uh there's a cooperative energy retailer that was set up to um, promote cheap power provision and investment in clean energy and so as a cooperative, they're not allowed to make a profit. Um, I mean, they can make a profit, but they, it doesn't It gets up. reinvested. It yeah. gets reinvested. And so during the initial phase of COVID, they did this thing called solidarity credits um, where everyone was given a $50, you know, I think $50 kind of voucher on their bill. Um, but you could choose to accept it or you could choose to say, I actually can afford this, you know, give it to someone else. And, I, and they used half of it um, sending overseas somewhere to communities that were struggling. So that's incredible. That's exciting to me. And they're now moving on to participatory budgeting where cooperative members actually get to choose that. So like is this exciting link between boring techno power thing that we all want power to our homes and actually, again, getting closer to democracy and that kind of contr- our own participation in the public good. So I, I think there's heaps of exciting. We can put all these in the show notes, but there's a, a lot of exciting models. Yeah. So, okay. So we want to see more of the good stuff and we want to see less of the like being ripped off or feeling ripped off um, by like, say, a multinational power company that is just, you know, has an incentive to charge you as much as they possibly can. So um, for like people who are listening to this, what can we start to do? How do we start to push for more of what we want in this time of huge transformation, transition? It's like a once in a probably several generation opportunity here to reshape what this looks like and to make it something that delivers like multiple benefits at multiple levels. 
Um, and I think that, you know, we shouldn't, but we don't necessarily know what the in is. So what is, what are some of the things that we would encourage people to start to do? Um, before we do that, just quickly backing up, because the other thing we didn't talk about um, was kind of like a renationalization of, of our power of production and um, distribution. So I, I think that's just also worth putting on the table of like, what would it look like for our power systems to be state owned and in public hands? And, you know, there's heaps of complex things around how you would do that and why you would do that and where it works and where it doesn't. But I think just to flag that when you put something like power in public hands, it means that the primary purpose of power provision, the primary purpose is power provision, not profit. And that radically then changes the lens through which you see it um, and has potential to really simplify a lot of complicated bureaucracy or complicate it. Who knows? Our abilities for that are endless. <laughs> and look, I know there are experts saying that basically privatization of the power grid has been a failed experiment from the 1990s and we should just reject it and look at like buyback and renationalization. It seems like such a political, like unlikely thing to, to really see happen or certainly not without a lot of agitation. I'd be curious to see the research as to whether anyone has polled this or looked at what levels of public support might be there. I suspect that it's one of those things that people could have a knee jerk reaction to like, yeah, okay. You know, like as long as they think that they're going to get the same deal or better, um, no one has a lot of love for their power company. Like, I don't think anyone's going to be devastated to think that their private energy provider might be, you know, renationalized. I think they just want to know that like the case would make sense and it would be well managed. Yeah. And so Dr. Hedda Ranson Cooper, who works on this, has been saying a lot about this, like there's real trust issues between power providers and consumers and that consumers are, there's a real risk if we go in with new technology, whether it's community batteries or different types of solar panels or whatever it is, there's a real risk that um, consumers will kind of get turned off, but also cranky. And she's saying in her research, she's finding that people really want to participate in the energy transition. They're really looking for leadership um, and trust. And it comes back to the work we talk about, about, you know, People, people want to contribute to this transition. They, they want to not just contribute with a petition or a send an email to the MP, not that those things are unhelpful. They're really important actions. But people want to be consulted and, and want to talk about the way power is useful for them um, and what it means, you know, power inequality, et cetera. So, yeah, I, I think that from her research, and we'll link to her work, you know, there's there's real appetite again for people to feel more ownership and perhaps coming back into state hands is, is one way to, to do that transition. Yeah. Well, I mean, we are already like the highest uptake of solar in the world, right? And that's through individuals leading individual, like one in four or something, you know, putting solar on their roof. Like that's incredible. Um, and it's been really the solution for people who want to try to take control of their energy um, and it works for some people and it doesn't work for other people. But yeah, I know there is definitely an appetite for this. Okay, so we put renationalization on the table as like, this is a thing. This is a thing. You're not going to hear about it a lot of places. Um, but it is absolutely an option if we if we had the sort of political will and case to be made for it. Um, all right. And so, but assuming that that is not happening tomorrow, what else can people do? I mean, I think partly it's getting, you know, there's, you know, we can do all the basic things, like you said, if, you know, if you can afford it, putting solar panels on your roof or make, or participating in a community 
solar project or community renewables project. Um, I think there's opportunities for looking at, well, where's your power coming from and could you change power providers? Some some places there are choices, some places there aren't. But, you know, uh, could you switch to green power if you can afford it? Could you switch to a cooperative power provider? You know, these are things that as individuals we can all do. But I would also say, like, start talking about it. Again, let's not be afraid to make mistakes as we start to talk about this and start to realise this is stuff that is in our interest um, to feel like we are legitimately allowed to be a part of this conversation. Yeah. So I, you know, the independent from Indi Helen Haynes, like she has been, um, her community are really leading on this. They're doing some uh, really kind of incredible work to uh, drive locally owned um, community power. And she really is encouraging people to get onto their MPs and um, talk about that need for like leadership in this transition and and what we actually want out of this. That you know we 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 want our communities to have a say and a stake and ideally some you know some model of ownership and investment that that works for us and not against us would be nice. So there's also um, the government website where you can go and try to find you know the best provider for you, Energy Made Easy. Um, .gov.au. Um, there is politically engaging with your MPs, asking your MP to support community owned and locally owned batteries with some government investment as well. There's just kind of getting informed, which hopefully this podcast has kind of helped you to feel that um, it's not, you know, it's not just a problem for private individuals to solve, which kind of takes us back to the top and to Tracy's kind of original question, which helped kick, kick this whole conversation off. Like, and I know that, you know, this isn't just about power to the home. It's also about what kind of car are we going to drive next? Like that was her sort of, you know, example was the EV charging stations. And who's responsible for investing in those? Is that something that should just be purely user pays? And if you have the money to afford an electric vehicle, you have the money to buy the the power station or you luck out to live in an area that has one or two available to you? Or is that something that we actually can get behind as a public good that belongs to everyone? And I think your example there about um, Helen Haynes in Indi and the community power work going on there is like that's a really interesting example of a community that was quite disengaged politically, had this amazing independence campaign over nine years or so, um, and are now feeling really empowered in all senses of the word to like participate in these public goods and create ownership around around them. So it's like a wonderful example of like reinvigorating democracy has all these flow-on effects. Um, And I think it's also worth putting, so there's the individual behaviour and, you know, I'd encourage you to check out the First Nations Energy, um, First Nations Clean Energy, you know, like there's ways to just financially support other organisations doing awesome things if your area isn't one that that can do that. Um, But also thinking about community level resilience. So one of the exciting things about, so one of the problems with community batteries, for example, is that in a time of crisis, um, some of them, if the grid goes down, that battery goes down as well, and some of them stand independently. So it's thinking about that kind of design stuff. But a community battery could never power the neighbourhood, or not, could not at the moment couldn't power the neighbourhood um, for very long. So it's also thinking strategically about, okay, so if we have a community battery that is separate from the grid, so it's kind of good for disasters, do we use it to power the school or a community hall? And then that becomes our disaster kind of resilience hub. So that's where people go to charge their phones or to get access to the news or, you know, so thinking about 
how are we situating these sort of localized solutions um, in ways that serve the community? Um, I think is kind of an exciting, you know, yeah, way to cool. think about it. Yeah. There's also yeah. a campaign from the parenthood that's been running, trying to, and they had this in the lead up to the election and it was email all of your candidates running for office, email your MP and ask them to commit to solar panels on every school in the country, every primary school. And, you know, that point that you just made is another argument for it because yes, if the power goes out, if we're in a time of emergency, it's nice to have, not only is it better for a school to be run on solar, you know, but it's also great to have a hub where we know the lights can stay on and, you know, our kids, if not our wider community, have somewhere to go. Yeah. And so that community level planning is essential because we could, you know, the school could have solar panels, but be so connected to the grid that when the grid goes down, they they do nothing. So we need to build the tech in, which is is there. It's it's just, we need to put that into the the planning. Um, The other kind of angle on this is different types of advocacy. So the Sydney Alliance, um, a subgroup of them did quite a lot of work on advocating um, for kind of solar fairness in western suburbs of Sydney. And, again, we'll link to that and I don't fully understand the details, but basically advocating for um, financial support to ensure that people could get access to solar and efficient tech um, in a way that it's a small scale at the moment, but um, in a way that is attempting to address some of the inequalities that come with, you know, the wealthy can do the solar fix and those mm-hmm. with money, you know, like you have to have the money to invest it. So there's also some really good examples of advocacy in this space that are, yeah, are exciting to see. Okay, cool. And, you know, back to um, that notion of the the EVs and the power charging points, um, a mutual friend of ours was recently over in the UK doing some traveling and she was marveling that in London, it was like every third parking spot is an EV charging point. It's just government infrastructure, or maybe it's a mix of government and private, but it's there. Um, It's not a big deal. It's not this exotic thing. The EU is moving to phase out petrol cars really soon, like in the next few years, you know, and Australia, I I believe that's correct. And Australia, it's just this kind of dumping ground for, you know, old internal combustion engines, petrol and diesel cars. And, and, you know, we're, our family would love to upgrade our car at the moment. We're looking at the price tags and it's just bananas. Like we don't have, because we haven't had the policy settings, we haven't had the leadership. We just don't have a, a, a decent secondhand market yet for electric and even hybrid vehicles. You know, it's, it's a little bit crazy and we need to make it easier for people to do the right thing, quote unquote, you know, we need to, it shouldn't be so hard. You shouldn't have to be rich. You shouldn't have to be a super nerd willing to like go into the depths of all of this stuff. You shouldn't have to swim so hard against the river in order to just have decisions that align with your values, goals, and like the health of, you know, everyone and everything around us. Like this Mm -hmm. should be straightforward. And so I think, you know, these opportunities are a little bit overwhelming and daunting, but they're also like really important to get right and really exciting. And and think about how wonderful that would be, you know, if you step outside into your life and you're not spending it like personal energy and money on trying to do the right thing. Like that is what the infrastructure of the public good brings us is basically peace of mind that we can exist in a way um, that is good for all of us and gives us a livable planet. Like that and, and moments of crisis like this are opportunities to reset in ways that free us. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Well, thank you, Millie. I feel like you have actually walked us through this a little bit and 
um, kind of demystified. You know, I've I've heard lots of other coverage of the crisis, but whenever it's come to the talk of the solutions, it's literally like, turn the lights off if you're not in the room, buy one of those dog sausages for under your door, um, see if <laughs> you can sausages. get a better price, <laughs> dog sausages, <laughs> see if you can get a better price, you know, from another provider. And sure, like those very back to basic things are fine to say to people, but there is a lot more that is creative and exciting that we can be working on here. And we encourage you to look in the show notes and see what you can find that resonates for you, whether that's investing in some kind of solar, you know, crowdfundy thing, whether that's finding out what your community is doing, maybe agitating to get something happening in your community. Um, we can we can take control of our energy in a way that's good for everyone. Yeah. Thanks, Lily. And I've, I've got in my head the Captain Planet slogan, you know, the power is yours. <laughs> I think we need to remember that. Absolutely. We should link to Captain Planet as well. Let's find it on the internet somewhere. Thanks everybody for listening and we will see you next time over on The Remakers. been The Remakers, a podcast by Australia Remade. We celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be Australian. That is 60,000 plus years as the oldest continuing civilization on earth. I'm recording my part of our chat from Muinina country in Lutruwida, Tasmania. And I record from Dara country, which is just north of Sydney. Our deepest respects to the elders and traditional custodians of these lands and waters. This podcast would not be possible without the talents of the incredible Anna Wilson, our producer. You can learn more about Australia Remade, sign up to get emails and join the community of remakers over on our website. That's australiaremade.org. And if you love the show, please rate and review on iTunes. If you want to send us your ideas or thoughts for future episodes or just share something that's on your mind, you can email us at podcast at australiaremade.org or give us a call. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for all that you do and for being part of this community. We'll see you next time.